kind of comes down to the Monty Hall problem and like kind of what we don't know about quarterbacks where when you have two quarterbacks on your roster, the probability of finding elite quarterback increases by, you know, twice as amount as just having that one quarterback there. And so when when the Bears are approaching this, like when they're switching doors and, and taking just and taking Bryce Young, that does increase the probability of them finding the elite quarterback. Welcome, everybody. This is Unexpected Points, an analytical football podcast. Today, my guests are the two hosts of the Take the Points podcast. That's Arjun Menon and Tage Seth. You can follow them on Twitter at Arjun Menon. That's A-R-J-U-N-M-E-N-O-N 100. And Tage Seth, who is at T-E-J-F-B Analytics. They are fans, one of the Chargers, one of the Lions. They are young interns who came and did some work at PFF while I was there and now uh, continue to do a lot of work, whether it is in the big data bowl space or for Tage, she's going to move on now and be a data scientist at uh, Sumner Sports, which is run by Thomas Dimitrov and uh, Eric Eager. Friend of the pod is over there doing that sort of work. If you are a listener normally, you'll like their podcast. You should listen to it uh, for sure, and you should also go and check them out. If you are a new listener to this podcast, hopefully you'll like the content that we have here, Unexpected Points Podcast, and you'll probably also like the content over on my Substack. That's unexpectedpoints.substack.com, where it has a piece of pretty much daily research coming out, including my most recent piece on Justin Fields and the Bears and the number one pick and why the Bears should consider drafting someone there, which I think is getting a lot of pickup and maybe even Ryan Poles is going to be considering it. We'll see. We talk about that in this podcast here. We also talk about the playoffs, everything to break down there, some unexpected teams that may rise up and maybe even get into the Super Bowl that we're not looking at. We talk about the big data bowl, which is the NFL's data contest that both of these guys have been a part of before, how you think about doing analysis, their specific entry for this year. And we also talk about how to break into the industry as two young guys who are going to the University of Michigan, who've now become known uh, entities in analytics and doing the type of work that's going to make an impact in the NFL and other sports. If you have any questions for me, you can follow me on Twitter at Kevin Cole, triple underscore, or email me unexpected points. That's PTS for points at gmail.com. And I'll be happy to address your questions or bring them up on my Friday mailbag pod. Let's get right to the content here. And let me talk with Tej and Arjun. All right, fellas, thank you for joining me on the Unexpected Points podcast, not the Take the Points podcast. What does it feel like now being on the other side, I guess, of the podcast dynamic? Are you switching between host and guest mode, or are you guys just going to take over and I can just sit back and watch? Yeah, I mean, we're... Um, I mean, I've been a big fan of your work, so I'd rather listen to you talk than listen to me talk, honestly. <laughs> uh, but yeah, no, I... Kevin, I really appreciate you having having us on, and uh, I'm really looking forward to some of the conversations we'll be having here. Yeah, yeah, yeah glad to have you guys. On. Yeah, yeah, I'm glad to have you guys. And again, don't don't give me too much of a window because if anything, I've been accused of cutting people off. 
a little bit too much when I'm trying to get my my points out there. So, but we'll we'll make sure there's a there's a healthy back and forth here. I know we got the playoffs, obviously playoffs coming up. Got some takes in that regard. Um, I talked about this a little bit on a podcast I did last week, which I'm trying to do this like subscriber only Q and A sort of thing um, for the Friday podcast, the Justin Fields thing. Um, I wrote Justin Fields versus the number one pick, what the Bears going to do. At that point, the number two pick, but they had the possibility of getting the number one pick. Um, they get the number one pick. Uh, maybe I was a little too over-exuberant, but I literally you know, had something out like two hours later <laughs> on Sunday <laughs> about what they should do with this number one pick. But it's starting to pick up some momentum. Now, for those listening who may not have seen it, now I, I'm reading, might be reading a little too much into this sort of stuff, but Ryan Poles his exact quote was, if he was absolutely blown away by a quarterback, maybe there'd be a pick there. Um, I don't know. That sounds a little bit, the door is not fully wide open, uh, but maybe a little bit more than even cracked open for that sort of thing. And maybe we got some momentum going here. Do, you, do either of you guys have a take uh, for or against the possibility of them taking a quarterback number one? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think, you know, it, it, my opinion might adjust over time, but right now I would lean towards the Bears trading Justin Fields and taking a quarterback at number one overall. And a lot of the points that you laid out in your article, I thought were really, really good about this. But to me, it kind of comes down to the Monty Hall problem and like kind of what we don't know about quarterbacks where you mentioned this in your Hertz article, I believe, in, in 2020 when the Eagles took him, that when you have two quarterbacks on your roster, the probability of finding elite quarterback increases by you know twice as amount as just having that one quarterback there and so when when the bears are approaching this like when they're switching doors and and taking just and taking bryce young and kind of like moving on from justin fields i think that does increase the probability of them finding the elite quarterback there and a lot of the other things that you pointed out like i i really like fields as a rusher and you know i think his his talent coming out of college was was really high but he still hasn't shown uh, ability to pass at a, an above average level yet, which could happen eventually. But I, I like kind of like bleeding into that extra years of the rookie contract with Bryce Young that you're going to get by drafting him to figure out him as a passer instead of kind of having limited years on rookie contract quarterback with fields. Yeah, no, I think, I think Tage brought up some great points. Um, I know since Kevin's probably on the, also what Tage said, I will play de- devil's advocate here. And All right. I, I think, I like it. I think, you know, I like to put myself in, in Ryan Poles and, and Eber Flus's shoes in that most GMs and coaches get like four to five year contracts, right? And so by year three, if you're not competitive, if you don't have a winning record, you're either going to be fired by the end of the season or you're going to be fired midseason. And so you have to at least be competitive by then. The problem, I think, with this is the Bears or this Bears regime didn't draft Justin Fields and they didn't, they weren't the ones who set up this Bears team to be in the position they're in. And this was something I posed on Twitter the other day, which was like, what steps forward as a passer would we have liked to see from fields, not statistically, but just like from a film perspective that, you know, would have justified the Bears not taking a quarterback because he is throwing to Darnell Mooney, Cole Komet, Velus Jones, Equinemi St. Brown, Dante Pettis. Like, it's not a very intimidating group of pass catchers. It's probably the worst group of pass catchers in the league, if we're being honest. So I think if the, I think the Bears potentially have a higher chance to be competitive this year with fields than a, a top quarterback. But the thing I'm, I've, I'm thinking about is if the bears are able to trade back from number one 
Um, you know, the, the Rams were able to get two future, two future first round picks for the second overall pick. The Bears would be able to get something similar to that. So if they keep fields and trade back and say they're not competitive in 2023, say a good measure to measure expectations would be if they go above or below their win total, right? This year they went below. Next year, if they improve their roster, win total gets set at seven and a half, six and a half. If they go above, they've exceeded expectations, right? So I think if you keep on the on the road with Justin Fields and he plays well because you're going to improve your roster around him given all the resources you have, I think you, you can stick with him. But if he doesn't improve as a passer, like you said, you're going to have two extra first-round picks next year or an extra first-rounder next year and, and one in 2025 to go up and trade to number one to get Caleb Williams or whatever top quarterback prospect there is. So I personally think they sh- right as of right now, I would say they should trade back you know, just garner more picks, more resources to help fields. And if he doesn't cut it, then you're going to have so many draft picks or at least high draft picks to trade up in 2024. But yeah, that's that's kind of like where I'm at right now. So the, the, yeah, that's the traditionalist route. And I think that maybe what I'm advocating, and this doesn't necessarily come across completely clearly because you don't really see it before, is not a hybrid path between those two. Um, but maybe like when, when Tej was saying, you know, move on from Justin Fields. So I'm not even saying necessarily move on from Fields. So that would be one thing. It would be like everything that you're saying about learning about Justin Fields, adding to the roster, all that sort of stuff. Like that can still be done in the context of also drafting a quarterback. Now it's not maximized, right? Um, but even if we think about, let's just look at 2023, right? Let's look at 2023. That's it. So if you trade it back from one, you probably have a top 10 pick still, right? From someone else. You probably get a second round pick also in this draft. You probably get a first round pick next year, maybe a second round pick next year. So you'd have two players that you wouldn't have had if you draft a, a, a quarterback at number one. Maybe more. You know, there might be later round picks. I don't want to get into like all the different details. So let's say like one of two of those may hit. They'll be okay as rookies, but they're really going to have more value in second and third year. And then you have a couple more picks that are really going to have value in second and third year. So we're talking about like a 2024, 2025, 2026 when those picks are really going to make a difference. And I think that's one of the problems I have with the objections is like, you're still, you can still build around. You can still spend that hundred million dollars. You can still use all your other draft picks. You can still have fields. You can still have a quarterback competition and see both of them. You could still even start fields to start the season. I don't think Bryce Young, let's say if they drafted Young or CJ Stroud, I don't think their value plummets because you're starting Justin Fields week one or weeks one through five um, and, and drafted them. You, you could be doing that. So I guess for me, it's a little bit of a hybrid path and the downside is there. But it's not as binary as some people have made it where like you're not choosing not to build around fields if you don't make this one pick. Because, again, when those picks start to mature after this season, you can negotiate an extension with Justin Fields. You know, after next season, you really got to be negotiating an extension with Justin Fields if you want to keep them. So when those picks mature with fields, you're also going to potentially be giving them you know, $50 million a year, the way quarterback salaries are going. So what, so I guess that would be my thing is like, can we figure out like the best of both worlds type of situation? Yeah. yeah I'm, oh, Sorry, Tej, you go. No, you got it. Oh yeah. No, I was just going to say like, when, when you like think about fields and like, kind of like the, you know, the amount of years that he has left on his rookie contract and then the extension that you brought up and 
you know, you also wrote about this in the article where like, we just don't know much about quarterbacks when situations change from year end to year end plus two, like a Carson Wentz, for example, where he could play at a very high level and then kind of fall off the cliff here. So like, that's why you can kind of, kind of go both ways with this where you're like right now fields looks to be in efficiency metrics about an average to slightly above average player. So do you lean into that and like hope that his explosive rushing ability kind of stays there or does that regress to the mean? And then you're looking at a below average quarterback where, or you could lean into kind of improving the passing surroundings uh, uh, around him and kind of getting him to be like a top 10 quarterback from an efficiency perspective in the league. So all that uncertainty. And then when you couple it with the uncertainty that, kind of comes through the draft with Bryce Young or whatever quarterback they decide to take at the top there it like becomes a very hard problem I feel like to to figure out here which is uh which is why we're, we're going to be talking about it so much over the next couple months yeah and one of the things I, I loved about your article like that you know one of my favorite graphs you always make is the like kind of EPA ba- breakdown like the the sack rate for Justin Fields is incredibly high the worst in the NFL. And I think like a lot of people have kind of pointed towards O-line metrics being good for the Bears. I think a lot of people who watch the Bears would agree that their O-line isn't that good. It's probably closer to like average than they would say. Um, but I think just generally O-line metrics are, are, are helped by mobile quarterbacks. But again, the question is, is Justin, does Justin Fields take too many sacks because no one's open or that's just like who he is, right? Like last year, Joe Burrow, high sack rate, but we knew we had stud receivers. Like we could pin the high sack rate on him, even though he had a, a pretty bad line. Like he was, he did have receivers who could, who could get open pretty quickly. But this year with Fields, I don't think he could really make that case. So if you improve his receiving core, does the sack rate go down? Does it stay the same? Because we saw similar problems with a high time to throw at, at Ohio State. And again, I think like this is something that you have to be able to solve with tracking data, just like the expected like EPA or something at, at every second of the throw and it is fields making optimal decisions, things like that. And I think it is a, it's, it's a problem that I think analytics could solve if, if you put enough time into it, but you know, as many analytics departments would agree, like a lot of people just don't have the time to like build those type of models or really flush it out the way that they wanted to. But I do think it's an interesting problem and um, it's, it's a pretty like cyclical thing because it, it involves like every facet of the passing game. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I think you might be able to argue that, his sack rate, even if it's the same, is his his sack taking, I guess I should say, even if his sack rate is the same, is maybe a little bit better because he is so actively looking to scramble a lot. And I know people think of scrambling somehow um, like mitigating sacks, which can be true if you're like versus a totally immobile quarterback who would just hold it. But in a lot of ways... When you, when you scramble rather than throw the ball, throw an incompletion, you're going to take more sacks too mm-hmm. um, if you have that sort of mentality. So maybe he's got a little bit better on that. I try not to include, though, too much about Fields as a prospect, I mean, as a player so far these first two years because the argument – because then you get into these arguments where people say, well, Fields is better than any of these quarterbacks because I believe he's better than you believe. And that, I think that that's what it comes down to a lot when it, when it comes to these sort of situations. Mm-hmm. But, like – Okay, I, I, this would be interesting to hear your guys' take on this because, like, what is the threshold? Because, like, if Trevor Lawrence, if they let's somehow, this is almost an impossible counterfactual. If your quarterback to be not good and have the number one pick after after two seasons, but let's say it's the case. Let's say if Trevor Lawrence got injured two weeks into the second season, the second season, uh, they lost every game. They had the number one pick again for the third year in a row. 
would he be someone that you would consider? Because in you know, last year, I mean, I, this has kind of been my my pet like project here. I did say at the beginning of last year that the Dolphins, who initially you know had a very very high pick, should have maybe considered taking uh, a quarterback to compete with Tua. Um, like, where is the threshold there? And let's not try to just make it like Justin Fields is the only person that you would think about this. Like, where is that threshold? Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I I think that's a really good question and you know something that I think we've all looked at here with with all of us sitting here is like how stable are your first two years as a passer as a player to the rest of your career and we found that it's actually pretty stable uh there's there's a lot of outliers in there for sure but the overall trend does stay pretty consistent from your passing perspective from your first two years to kind of like the the next three four years or, or kind of the rest of your career so I think you would need to see a, a positive uh, passing success and above average passing success from your quarterback to commit to them. And you have to give them the two year threshold to kind of show what they can do. And there's some special circumstances where like fields, for example, didn't play as much as his rookie season as some other quarterbacks do, or there's other quarterbacks like Mahomes who sat their entire rookie season. So there's, there's like some quarterbacks that, can get that two full seasons worth of playing time in their third year. And like, that's when you can evaluate them, but that's kind of my uh, arbitrary threshold. That's not as arbitrary because it's shown to be stable uh, from, from years one and two onward. Yeah, I, I totally agree with Tage. I think uh, two years is a good threshold to use. I think in Fields case, you could go three just because he's played in two new, two new regimes. And from year one to year two, his roster got worse, which I, again, when you have a QB on a rookie deal, typically your rosters are supposed to improve year every year. But for Fields, it got worse. You look at like Herbert or Burrow and and uh, Tua, like all of their rosters got better year one to year two, year two to year three. And um, this was something I, I just wrote on PFF, which is like the Bears have the second most offseason resources in terms of draft capital and um, uh, effective cap space as of right now. So they're gonna have they're gonna be able to upgrade the roster. And I think, like Tate said, if he's not at least above average, you know, in year three, then I think you definitely have to move on from him because you don't want to be stuck in that purgatory of just being above average. You want to see him be possibly like top 12, top 10. Um, and, you know, his rushing ability gives him a higher ceiling than most of the, I would say, like Herculean quarterbacks. But if he's not able to win as a passer, I don't think he's going to be able to win in the playoffs against some of the better defenses who have, you know, athletic guys like, you know, like the Bucks do or like the Packers do if they get back into the play- into the playoffs. Yeah, yeah. Well, one more thing about thinking about fields, and again, like there's this, people love to just like dismiss things. So I agree he has bad surroundings, right? He has really bad surroundings. There's no doubt about that. Although they did end up spending what's going what's gonna to be the 32nd pick in this draft on <laughs> Chase, Chase Claypool. But that's, you know, Ryan Poles, uh, RIP on that, on that one. Um but so here, here's how I would think about it, though, is like you could still get something from it. If you say Fields has the worst surrounding, worst surroundings in the NFL for generating value passing the ball, let's say. I don't think that's true, but let's I don't think it's necessarily true because you can't be like confident necessarily. And let's say he does. If he ends up having the worst results in the NFL and by pass how much expected points added he has for anyone who's had at least, let's say 300, 400 plays this season. I mean, he's last in the NFL. Um, if you, if you, if you take interceptions and, you know, sacks again, I don't want to take sacks. If we take a, then he goes even further down the NFL. So like if you have the worst situation and you have the worst results, 
that's it's tough to make the argument that it's just the situation, right? Mm-hmm. Like it, it, there, there, there's no upside from that. So I got, that would be also something I would point to. I say, yeah, we're not confident he's bad, but if you're not bad, you're probably not going to have the worst results, even if you have the worst yeah. situation. Mm-hmm. It's it's the Sam Darnold thing, right? Where yes, everyone exactly. everyone saw Sam Darnold with a really bad situation in, in New York. And obviously, he was really, really bad in his first couple of years. And even though he had bad surroundings, he was like last in EPA. He created the Darnold's Mahomes law that Tage kind of like has coined uh, as, as a, like a trademark thing. But yeah, I mean, this year, Fields hasn't been like he hasn't been last, but he's definitely been below average in whatever efficiency metrics you want to use right now. Uh, per Ben Baldwin's side, he's 22nd in adjusted EPA per play, right below Aaron Rodgers, right above Kenny Pickett. So uh, I do think like he's not at that level where he's not like too awful with a bad supporting cast where we can just say, okay, he's not good, but I, I don't know. It, it's a really tough question, but I do agree with everything you said, Kevin. And I think, uh, I, I think fields could benefit from improving a supporting cast to potentially improve his uh, efficiency numbers. I mean, and that's 22nd with this like ridiculous running efficiency that, yeah. that he's had. So, yeah. Okay. So one other thing I'll mention here uh, before we get on, uh, pl- plug for uh, my Substack. Uh, <laughs> I was looking through the other day. There is an email address. Um, subscribe to the Substack. That's at at bears.nfl.net or something like that. It is actually in some of the Bears front office. I won't dox whoever. I'm not, not going to reveal subscribers out there, but thank you for reading uh, Bears, Bears front office. So hopefully that's getting pushed onto Ryan Poles' uh, desk here. Um, and one, one thing about speculation, it's probably not our forte here uh in our in our in our world but you mentioned like not building around fields what ryan poles did because ryan poles didn't draft him two first round picks used on him he comes in he almost punts on the entire season and as we mentioned like the traditionally these uh gms for the guy that they've drafted almost most of the time, these GMs are like bending over backwards to make these quarterbacks successful in their second seasons. They're spending money, they're trading for players, they're doing whatever they can to try to make those successful. Polls did not do that. And that's maybe a hint that he maybe wasn't sold on on fields there. Um, All of our friends, Eric Eager, uh, he has not said explicitly, but I'm going to read some tea leaves here that he's, he's hinted at the fact that Polls may not have been sold on fields. I don't know if he knows that. I don't know if he knows people who may know that or knows people who may know that who may know that. But, you know, Chiefs insider, our own Chiefs insider, Eric Eager and Polls from from the Chiefs there. He's mentioned that. So that would be another question, right? Like fields got better. But if you weren't sold on him in the first place, I think it's now maybe even a higher bar at this point to to hold on to him. Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, I know. I, I agree with you. And I think coming into the season based on everything that the Bears did, they didn't want to necessarily set up fields for success as much as other new regimes try to set up their young quarterbacks for success. You hire a defensive-minded head coach, which I think hiring a defensive-minded head coach can do a lot of things for a young quarterback, teaching them how to read defenses better than offensive coordinators might. But a lot of people were upset about that hiring with what they had in fields there. And then you had Ryan Poles kind of put a lot of resources into the defensive side of the ball while ignoring the offensive side of the ball. And we saw those results uh, up those, those first eight weeks up until that Patriots Monday night game where the Bears offense looked really, really bad. Fields wasn't playing particularly well. His efficiency stats weren't that well. 
and something changed within the coaching staff or with the way that they approached these games. And they started really leaning into Fields' rushing ability that they weren't already leaning into. And that kind of sent this spark for the Bears where it led them to kind of have more efficient offense while their their defense traded away some stars and uh, were, were not playing as well. And this is, this is what kind of changed for the Bears halfway through the season. So I do agree with you that Poles came into the season not really wanting to do anything long-term with Field because he didn't draft him and might have had lower priors on him than other GMs. But because of what the coaching staff decided to do midway through the season, he might feel more pressure to stick with them now than he did before. Yeah, and one question I, I want to kind of pose to you, Kevin, like, the Bears are entering this offseason with upwards of $100 million in effective cap space. And to quote Bill Polian, like, you don't ever want to save cap space for the next guy, right? Like, I'm not saying Iberflus and Poles are gone if Fields struggles this year. Like, it would have only been two years in the regime. Like, it's not their guy. But if you do d- decide to trade back and go in with Fields in the, into his year three, into you know the regime's year two, do you – think the Bears should be spending all of that cap space not all of it but like a majority of it like the Jags did like the Jets did or do you think they should be a little bit conservative and like you want to spend to upgrade the roster but you don't want to spend everything because you want to potentially have enough maneuverability for the potential like next franchise quarterback like what do you think they should do in that regard yeah I mean it's a little bit of a of a tough situation because wide receiver wise there's not it's really bad it's bad. <laughs> It's, yeah, it's, really it's it's really bad. But then again, you know, like Christian Kirk, I don't know if he, he if he was a value for what the Jags ended up giving for him. But having comp, I think the, the having like competent wide receiver play is probably more value than valuable than it's been in the past because we have less of this kind of like alpha dominant wide receiver one system. So I would say fill in pieces. I would say look towards positions where you can get value, like maybe some defensive backs, some middle linebackers, um, some interior offensive linemen, um, and then, you know, make draft picks and carry over what you can to hopefully you're going to hit on some of those draft picks and then eventually use that, that rollover cap in that direction. So that's, that's probably how I would, I would play it, but you really just have the ability, I think, to structure deals where like anything beyond a, like a glorified two-year contract should only be for superstars in, in, mm-hmm. in the NFL right now. So I think that's another thing is just make sure you don't commit yourself beyond the next couple of years. And that's another thing. If you're going back to trading back in the draft and sticking with fields or drafting someone at number one overall is when you have this much cap space, like the bears do, you're not going to get necessarily value signings because those don't happen that frequently in free agency, but you will get, competent players that are starter level like the Jaguars did when they went on their spending spree this past year. So there is still a path for the bears to build up a pretty good supporting cast and get some additional players on top of that because of the cap space that they have being so much more than anyone else in the league where if they really wanted one player, they could get them for sure while other teams don't have that kind of money to spend. So that, that could be like another angle for them not trading back. Yeah, I mean, there's like a rank order. Like, you'd rather spend your money on your own players who you're resigning, mm-hmm. who aren't in free agency, so they don't have as much leverage. You know a lot about them. A team mm-hmm. hasn't decided that they're willing to let them go. But if those don't exist, <laughs> then, then you, now you're in the free yeah. agent bucket and saying, mm-hmm. how can we maximize what we're doing there? What, what other point I want to make about the, the trading back thing? And I know, Tej, you mentioned this before about, you know, we collect picks and maybe we can get the right guy next year. 
I would only critique that a little bit in that you just, number one, we don't know what we're going to have in 2024, a year in advance. Like we don't know. And number two, like, let's say Caleb Williams comes out. If you're not that number one pick and it doesn't happen to be someone who's willing to trade out, if it's another bad team, it's going to be a bad team, right? So it has to be, has to be mm-hmm. a, a bad team, which we know, cause it'll be the number one pick B a bad team with a quarterback. Who's not going to want to take them, which is like a smaller subset. And then you have to outbid everyone. So, cause if, it, if it's a bad team that needs a quarterback, you could trade away your entire family, your, everyone in the world, everything else. You're not getting that pick. So, like, I, I would just warn against, like, wait till next year, trade up, get the better quarterback. It's not always the case. Like, the Cincinnati Bengals were not going to allow the Miami Dolphins or whoever to come up and get Joe Burrow in that draft, no matter what they offered him that year. Mm-hmm. Okay, yeah. let's, 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 let's get to the playoffs. Let's get to the playoffs. I want to get the playoffs. I want to get – to Chargers first, because I know we have a diehard Chargers <laughs> fan here. So maybe we can get some biased analysis here. Because the Chargers, at least according to my numbers, don't look so hot. So are you gonna sell me? Arjun, are you gonna sell me on the Chargers? Or are you gonna are you gonna put your analyst hat on and and tell me that maybe they're not as good as some people think? Because that would be the one team I would look at where of any team, if I would say, here's what my numbers are saying, and here's what I want to believe, there's probably the biggest discrepancy between the two. Yeah, I mean, you don't have to. I've, I mean, here's the thing. I've, I'm kind of bought into the Chargers. Like, I think they can make a run. I know the numbers Definitely. say otherwise, but the thing with the Chargers is I think they're successful this year in the two areas where you need to be successful in the playoffs, which is being able to pass the ball and being able to stop the pass. I know a lot of people don't like Joe Lombardi or whatnot. Um, and I do think for the most part of this offense, you know, the play calling has been a little bit questionable just because they're not really maximizing Herbert's arm. But the last couple of weeks, we've seen Herbert kind of take a step forward in, in his efficiency numbers. I don't I personally just watching the games don't think he's had that bad of a game in any game since the bye week when he's had time to get healthy and stopping the pass wise. I mean, since week nine, they've been the number one pass defense by EPA. I know using those splits are always tricky, but I think there is some signal in that kind of shift in, in philosophy and mentality from a defense. And they did this playing teams like the Chiefs, like the Niners, like the Dolphins, who were coming into that game pretty much fully healthy. So I do think the Chargers have the pieces to make a run. Um, you know, I'm not going to give anything away, but they could be getting a big piece back on their offensive line if they make it to the divisional round after this week. Um, and I do think just in general – Herbert is one of the better quarterbacks in the league and he can, if he has Mike Williams and Keenan Allen, he can go toe to toe with anyone regardless of team strength. So I know the numbers, trust me, I've looked at all the numbers. They say the chargers are not that great of a team on either side of the ball, but I don't think their, their weaknesses in run defense and uh, like even pass protection kind of mitigates the elite level that Justin Herbert can play at. And also just the way that Staley's kind of crafted this pass defense. So I kind of hope that gives some insight. Uh, I know I hope that wasn't too biased either. <laughs> no, no, that, that that sounded pretty good. Okay, well, I, I maybe I'll press you a little bit on the Herbert thing because, again, I I think like in my heart, I'm with you on all these different things. Um, and there was the injury, so we have to think about the injury. Like that that matters a lot. Mm-hmm. Um, I think it even matters what we saw some somewhat from Josh Allen down the stretch. Um him having some injury problems and maybe, but if you're going to say, this is what I thought about Justin Herbert at the beginning of the season. And, you know, again, I was there. I was my, one of my predictions was that it was going to be basically like Mahomes and Herbert and Allen were all going to be 
in that sort of category with Mahomes mm-hmm. still being number one, but the other guys being right there. And we've seen, you know, Allen stayed there. Herbert, Herbert hasn't been there. So now after we've seen this season, does it change at all how you think about Justin Herbert or are you willing to say there are enough um, contextual factors around this that you're not going to think of him any differently at this point? Yeah. I mean, I haven't really changed my stance on him. Trust me. Like I know the efficiency numbers are bad are not it's not that they're bad they're just below what he's been at his first two years but this is something that I mean I just looked at and I don't think you can like really properly account for Herbert's efficiency to really be on him he's in the top five in pressure to sack rate which means he doesn't let pressures turn into sacks very often he has one of the lowest turnover worthy play rates in the NFL which means he's not really putting the ball in harm's way so of the two big things of you know not taking sacks and interceptions, which basically results in kind of like our good way to measure decision-making. He is one of the best in the league. And we can agree that up to week 12, his top three receivers hadn't played, had only played 12 snaps together. So he, we have to kind of account for that on top of Herbert's rib injury. So to me, just like watching the games and even looking at the numbers, I don't, you know, I I think it, it just, it's not wise to kind of pin Herbert's lack of efficiency solely on him. Obviously there has been, Sometimes where he's looked, he hasn't played up to his standards and obviously the efficiency numbers kind of reflect that. But I think for the most part, he's kept this team afloat. And when you're throwing at times to DeAndre Carter as your wide receiver too, I think, you know, that that's something that very few quarterbacks can really overcome. And I'm not, I'm never going to really use QB wins as an argument. I'm not going to use it here. But I think if you look at the efficiency numbers and you kind of match it to some of what of the stats that PFF has, like turnover worthy play rate, accuracy, uh, pressure to sack ratio, some good quarterback metrics. They Herbert shows up very well in the quarterback metrics, but he doesn't show up well in kind of these efficiency metrics that mostly talk about how the team has performed as a whole and not a quarterback. Yeah, no, I, I like that. I didn't. I don't know if this is a hot take or not, but um, like low key, I'm not sure his receivers are that good even when they are all healthy. <laughs> like I don't know if I really yeah. like Mike Williams and Keenan Allen that much. I mean, uh, Keenan Allen is great, great player. A little bit, of, you know, he's he's getting a little long in the tooth, as they would say, for for going up there. There. So, um, do you have any feeling about this game then? Because it's it's not a pick. I mean, the the Chargers are slightly favored, but it's between the three so much that it's mm-hmm. around you know a point or something like that. Uh, it's in Jacksonville, so Chargers are seeing it slightly better. But it seems it's been a pretty close matchup, which I think is is fair is fair to say. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I agree with the line. I mean, personally, I'm on I'm on the Chargers in this game just because I think the Chargers passing offense right now is better than the Jags passing offense. And I trust the Chargers passing defense to slow down or potentially slow down the Jags passing defense. And I think the Jaguars have some uh, some questionable secondary guys that I think the Chargers can take advantage of, especially in the slot. So, uh, yeah, I'm pretty excited for this game. I'm glad uh, the NFL put this on Saturday night, Herbert and Lawrence, who some, some people have dubbed Trevor Lawrence is like a mini Herbert at this point. Um, so I, I think that's a kind of a fair comparison. And I'm very curious to see how it plays out. And I think it'll be a great matchup. Yeah, no, I, I totally agree. Okay, let's, um, Tej, let's go to you here. Do you have anything on, let's start, stay on the AFC side of it. Do you have like a team there? And we can't say the Chargers because we already talked about the Chargers here. Mm-hmm. Do, you, do you have any team there that you think may have a better than expected chance? And maybe I'll just throw out first. I'm okay. Let's, let's talk about the two seven matchup first. Ten and a half points right now. So does that mean two is not playing? I guess. Like, is that the assumption there? Because I don't know. I probably have the Dolphins a lot better than that. If if he was playing, is there anything else that jumps out at you from what we're seeing? At least how the market's pricing this stuff. Mm-hmm. 
Yeah, I mean, starting at the 2-7 matchup, I would assume that 10.5 line towards the Bills means that Tua isn't playing because the Dolphins on plays that Tua has been involved in this year, whether you know he's been scrambling or most of his passes, basically 0.23 EPA per play. And then on non-Tua quarterback plays, negative 0.15, which takes him from the second yeah. most efficient passing My man, Skylar Thompson. Third. I was loving Skylar yeah. Thompson in the preseason. It hasn't, hasn't worked <laughs> out so hot during the regular season. Yeah, so when you're when you're entering this game with a bottom five passing offense against the Bills, like I, I think that line is is about fair. Tua, if he were to play, we could see the Dolphins kind of keep pace with the Bills like they did on that Saturday night game a couple weeks ago. But Tua probably shouldn't play in this game given all the concussions that he's accumulated and everything. What the the other matchup that I think is really interesting is the the Bengals Ravens game and kind of what's going on with the Ravens right now is. Like they are just too banged up, I think, at too many key areas to compete well in this game. And the Ravens have played really, really well the these last couple of weeks. So I do like the Bengals to do pretty well in this game. And the line is six and a half, but I, I think that the Bengals could kind of blow open this game because I don't know if the Ravens necessarily have the secondary pieces to stop the best receiver trio in football. Like your your uh, Substacks pointed out, like no one has done better at not dropping passes and getting open than Jamar Chase, T Higgins and Tyler Boyd. So I don't think the Ravens will be able to stop them in that aspect. And then Lamar's first game back, he's not going to be hundred percent healthy. His rushing ability might not be there. And Lamar's the type of player that he's not an elite passer. So I think he really needs the reps to get going. So for playing for the first time in six weeks for him might be a little tough against a really good Bengals defense. So I could see that game kind of getting out of hand if, if I were to pick a side there. Do you think the six and a half has any anything built in there about Lamar not coming back? I do think there is a chance that Lamar doesn't play in this game. And, you know, with with kind of what they've been doing where it kind of seemed like Lamar was going to play in that week 18 matchup, but maybe they kept him out to keep him fresh. And they also sat like a lot of other players on their team. We, we could see maybe the Ravens were just preparing for the game. They realized that the chance of a coin flip for home field advantage didn't really matter much. But I, I think that maybe it's shaded a point over because the chance of Lamar playing, but with him for sure playing five and a half still seems a little too light given how good the Bengals have been playing recently. Yeah, I mean, if it, and also with a 43 and a half total on this, um, Yes, not predicting a lot of points coming out of the Ravens offense, which I think is fair. Do you think we can believe in this Ravens defense post uh, Roquan Smith turnaround sort of the uh, people in their splits? They got their split machines out and we got the Roquan Smith before and after splits. Um, he's now he's the most valuable uh, defensive player in the NFL. How much are you believing in the, in the defensive turnaround that we've seen there? Because I think that's interesting, at least because I did think the offense was unstable i mean um unsustainable with their success with big plays early in the season when the defense wasn't playing well but now the defense has been better um but the Bengals defense Bengals offense may be too much for them to handle mm-hmm. yeah i know i mean that's that's kind of what it is at the end of the day is like defense because of how much variance is involved in it kind of just fluctuates up and down and sometimes you can point to something specific kind of taking it 
that way. But I do think that the defense was just naturally going to get better throughout the course of the season. You have a new defensive coordinator totally changing your scheme from the most aggressive defense in the NFL to a, a too high defense that only rushes four pass rushers a lot more often. So I think it naturally was just going to take time. It just so happened that when they traded for Roquan Smith, the defense happened to start playing better as a whole and also play some easier offenses. I think Roquan's a good player, but like you mentioned, he's not the most important defensive player in the NFL, even though the, the split stats might say that. Yeah, yeah. I think also um, Patrick Queen is kind of like low-key, not very good, um, <laughs> but, they used, but they used a high pick on him, so that may have been holding him back a little bit. A Kevin, little bit not, too, not, to, not to yeah, interrupt, I, you know, we're it. recording right now. The Ravens just extended Roquan Smith. Oh really? Okay. Well, five these, year, five they spent the second round pick, dollars. so that makes some sense. Yeah. yeah well, what but is it again? Okay. Let's let's, five, let's bring up. Uh, yeah, five years, a hundred million with forty-five mil fully guaranteed. Okay, let's bring up uh, oh. Josh Hermsmeyer's Twitter account to see how he's, <laughs> he's reacting. <laughs> he's reacting to this. Um, yeah, I mean, once they spent the second round pick on him, um, but again, yeah, I mean, think about the investment in that position. I mean, you have Patrick Queen. First round pick, right? And a first and a first round pick uh, before taking uh, J.K. Dobbins in the second round, and yeah. then uh, now trading away a second round pick, which I guess is going to be in the fifties somewhere. Which is which, you know, in a way, low key, very important for this. Like, will the Bears take a quarterback at number one? Imagine if they didn't have that pick, right? If they didn't have that pick, mm-hmm. it would be no picks until the third round, right? For what for mm-hmm. what's going on there. So that, and then now investing in this contract where, hmm, are we getting, is this telling us anything about Lamar Jackson? I don't know. Is it where they're going to spend the money? Yeah. It's interesting. It's interesting at least, but I, I think they were they were somewhat committed when they when they made the second round pick, right? I really like that point, actually, about Lamar. I, I do think there is noise there that this game against the Bengals this weekend might be his, his last game as a Raven. The, the Ravens haven't shown any commitment to him long-term from kind of getting him to, to, to stay. You would have wanted to get that extension done last summer if you are really committed to him. Like, all the quarterbacks get their extensions done usually in, in that time frame, but the Ravens are waiting on Lamar. And so maybe that shows that they're planning on having extra money elsewhere and they can afford to spend this much money on a linebacker and and that uh lamar is is not in their long-term plans but who knows yeah yeah i mean they have to i mean it'd have to be a tag and trade situation right Mm -hmm. if they were going to do something Mm -hmm. there so they'd have to have that money but even here with they're just signing smith now the cap hits won't really hit for for a few years so i don't know I, i would really want to know i'd really think it'd be interesting to know in a tag and trade, like what you could get for Lamar Jackson, if if you did tag and trade him, you guys have any theories for? I mean, first round pick, but how much beyond that? Knowing you're going to have to sign this guy to a fifty million dollar a year contract, and maybe he wants a fully guaranteed contract. I don't even get like that's not going to happen probably, but I don't know. You guys have any thoughts on that? Yeah, it's it's. I think if you tag and trade Lamar, you you're giving yourself to have you're giving yourself a chance to have a pretty high path or just efficiency, offensive efficiency. But I think in terms of evaluating his play relative to what he's getting paid and what you paid for him via his surplus value, I think it's probably going to be pretty small that if you're paying him $50 million, plus you have to try to calculate the dollar value of the first round picks, which it's going to be multiple for Lamar Jackson, just the surplus value that he's going to give you on those, on that entire 
deal plus picks, I think it's either going to be negative or it's going to be not as positive as what, you know, he would give you on a, on a rookie deal. So I don't know. That's a, that's a tricky situation. I do think there are, are a good number of teams. I'd probably call the Ravens and just check, check to see what the price is. But I think a tag and trade, it would be very, very tricky for any team that kind of approaches it. Cause you got to have a, a deal like ready to offer him at the time of the trade, I think. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, you could try to tag him again. How about this? <laughs> you want to blow everyone's mind. How about the Chicago bears trade their number one <laughs> overall pick for <laughs> Lamar Jackson? How about that? Boom. Then we can just get everything. So then people won't know what to do. They're like, I, I don't know what, what, who to yell at. How do I yell at the nerds? Like, how do I figure this out? <laughs> their minds will just be completely blown in that, in that circumstance. So I'm, I'm going to advocate. I think I'm going to advocate for that one. Throw in Justin Fields too. Then, then people really yeah. w- won't know what to do in that situation. All right, let's go to the NFC because I think the NFC is really intriguing in that my opinion of the Eagles, while still pretty high, uh, you know, they they limped in at the end of the season there. They had probably the easiest or second easiest schedule in the NFL, which doesn't, you know, help necessarily, but they have the buy. And the 49ers are looking really good, even with Brock Purdy at – at quarterback i don't have a lot to say with 49ers um seahawks i mean it's nine and a half now i think that makes sense there's always a chance that the seahawks could do something but geno smith is you know he hasn't turned back into a pumpkin but he hasn't been great the second second half of the season so i'm not that intrigued there i am intrigued by tampa dallas and maybe this is one of those things where i just don't update my priors enough but i've thought that the bucks were had a chance at least to turn things around better than teams like the Rams um, earlier this year when they were struggling. And if you look at the, the spread here, you know, it's less than three points to the Cowboys at the Bucks, So it's a pretty close game. I mean, it's the closest game other, uh, according to the point spread, other than the Chargers Jacksonville game this weekend. So there's a really good shot that the Bucks can win this one at home. How are you guys feeling about the Cowboys? Cause I guess that's probably a team where, I could have put them in a, you know, second tier to the to the Bills and Chiefs of the world just a few weeks ago. And now I'm thinking, well, maybe they're not even in the same tier as the 49ers and um, and the Bengals and teams like that. How, how are you feeling about them? I'm feeling lower on the Cowboys than I did a couple of weeks ago. I think it starts in their secondary with kind of the injuries they've had at corner. And when you play third and fourth string corners, they're not going to be good. And it's it's really shown these past couple of weeks. Teams have been able to pass all over them. We saw Trevor Lawrence and the Jags kind of have their way. We saw Gardner Minshew and the Eagles kind of be able to do whatever they want there as well. And I think Parsons is playing a little banged up, which kind of prohibits their pass rush from completely taking over games like he did earlier in the season. On the offensive side of the ball, I think Dak has played at a pretty high level and being top five in EPA per play shows that. But in these games, and we saw Todd Bowles have a really, really good defensive game plan last year in the playoffs against the Eagles. When Todd Bowles approaches this game, I think we, he's going to really emphasize uh, taking away CeeDee Lamb and trying to make Michael Gallup and the rest of the Cowboys' offense beat you. I think that's going to be a tough task for them because the Cowboys' offense is most efficient throwing over the middle of the field to Lamb. And if that's not available to them, like how he made everything that Hurts was good at last year not available to Hurts in their playoff game, I think that could be pretty worrisome for the Cowboys going into this game. Even like adding on to that, you go back to 2020 when the Bucks played the Packers, the Bucks game plan was to take away Devontae Adams, bracket him, force Rodgers to beat him with Alan Lazard and um, and whoever uh, like 
I don't even know who their third receiver was that year. Um, Probably MVS or somebody. Yeah. Did, yeah was he MBS, healthy? MBS. I don't remember. Yeah. Yeah. So I think it's a similar game plan here. You take away CeeDee Lamb. Michael, Ga- their second leading receiver is, is Noah Brown, which is, you know, kind of sad given that Michael Gallup, they gave a pretty good extension to him over the summer. So I think you take away CeeDee Lamb, you force the Cowboys to beat you with their secondary receivers. And I think they struggle. I, I think Dak has been kind of inconsistent. I, I don't, by the interception numbers totally because uh, you know his turnover worthy playwright doesn't really match the interception numbers and i think um you know a couple of the cowboys beat riders are saying like only uh, he has one of the highest percentage of interceptions not deemed as turnover worthy plays so he just got an unlucky there but i do think the bucks present some problems to this cowboys um offense and on the flip side michael parsons and demarcus lawrence have been having great years but the bucks strength in their O-line is their tackles with Tristan Wurst, who can negate whoever he goes up against one-on-one. He's left on the island at the highest rate of any offensive tackle in the league, and he's one of the most successful in those situations as well. And the thing with the Cowboys, they like to stunt. They like to bring Parsons up, you know, stunting over the interior to Marcus Lawrence over the interior sometimes. But Brady gets rid of the ball so quick that the stunts, which take – 2, 2.3, 2.4 seconds to you know get there, it won't be as effective because Brady's usually going to have the ball out by that time. And you know one of the things we saw from Brady this year, I don't know if it's because he doesn't want to get hit. His time to throw is like has been really low pretty much all year. But at times when he does hold on to the ball a bit longer, I feel like he has been more efficient. And I think the receiving trio of, of Evans, Julio Jones, and Godwin, or Russell Gage instead of Julio, can take advantage of a Dallas secondary outside of Trevon Diggs. Yeah, yeah, this would be a good potential uh, point of evidence slash victory lap, however you want to say it, for our uh, coverage over pass rush, right? We need we need to bring that back into the mix. We haven't had a good uh, duking it out online over that in a while. So that would be good. And I think Dak is really an interesting guy. Like, the, it was so bad last week, right? Their performance was, was, was mm-hmm. awful. But what I also think is interesting about Dak is just how he more than almost anyone, well, not more than anyone, but right near the top, uh, shows like what world we're living in as far as our social media, uh, how it's curate, curated is concerned. Because when he's struggling, I will see so many tweets reacting to people being critical of him, but not really any tweets of being critical of him. So I'm always like, what are these people reacting to? Because I never see anyone being being that critical of Dak. But I think, you know, Dak's up or down. Like Dak is not in that top elite tier of guys um he's not someone you know it's fine that you're paying him the money all that sort of stuff but i don't think you can necessarily just just mark in pen that he's going to give you a top performance against this defense um as you mentioned without having multiple receivers who are like efficiency producing receivers yeah you can you can hit dalton schultz 10 times a game but whether you're gonna get efficiency out of there or not uh, i'm not quite sure that's why the bucks i think sneaky win this you know, go to Philadelphia instead of playing the 49ers. It, it could at least be at least be interesting uh, discussion there. Any takes on Vikings Giants? Looks like the Vikings are three point favorites. According to my numbers, they're actually have them as being pretty similar in team strength. So the market thinks the Vikings are a little bit better, which makes sense uh, since they have the record to to back that up. Um, how, how do you think about this sort of game? And do you like the fact that the Vikings are seen as being better, which I think is fair. Um, but those two teams, at least for me, were like in a, in a different category as far as being pro- maybe the worst two teams in the, in the playoffs mm-hmm. as a whole. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I we saw this game play out a couple of weeks ago. Really exciting game. But the things that the Giants kind of had to do to stay 
close in that game make me like the Vikings in this spot, even though the Vikings still aren't one of like the top teams that are in the playoffs. They're, they're still like a team that can beat these types of teams and, and the Giants. And I think like at the end of the day, the Giants just don't have the, the high-end talent on their roster to take over. They keep Daniel Jones at a very low usage rate to keep his efficiency high, but that's not going to work in these types of playoff games where you're going to have to rely on suboptimal things like giving the ball to Saquon Barkley 20 times in a close game, which probably won't work out well for the Giants. But, you know, the, the Vikings are, are very beatable right now, and they've showed that over the past couple of weeks, especially in that Packers game where – when, when things go sideways for them, teams can take advantage of that. And uh, there's almost no better coaching staff right now to do that than the Giants. So maybe that's why they, they can keep that close. But I think at the end of the day, it's it's a talent thing. And Kirk Cousins being able to throw to Justin Jefferson and TJ Hawkinson and Adam Thielen, KJ Osborne on third downs when they kind of need a bucket to convert while the Giants either having to run or throw to some receivers that they don't really trust on their third downs will end up being the difference in this game. Yeah. And I think the big X factors, whether Dory Jackson can play or not, um, you know, our, when me and Tage did our preview on this game on our podcast, the thing was no one like cousins has struggled versus the blitz this year. I think a lot of quarterbacks just generally have struggled versus cover zero. And that's what Wink Martindale likes to run, like to run. But there was no one on the Giants that had any faith in stopping Jefferson, who eventually ended with 12 catches for 133 yards on 16 targets uh, for a touchdown. So, um, again, I think getting Adore Jackson back, a potential guy that could match up one-on-one with Jefferson, he's never going to shut him down. He could help to slow him down, force you to win with Adam Thielen and KJ Osborne, who I think Osborne's been having a good year, Thielen not so much. Um, but I think, yeah, I think, having a Dory Jackson back for the Giants is definitely going to help. The thing with the Vikings, they play the lightest boxes of any team in the league on early downs. So the Giants are going to be like, are going to have favorable, uh, you know, box counts to run into if they want to run Saquon 20 times, like Tage said. So I think there are advantages for the Giants on offense, even if their receivers aren't that great, just because the Vikings defense isn't that good. But I still worry about, the Vikings offense versus I still worry for the Giants defense against this Vikings offense, because I don't think anyone can really match up against Justin Jefferson. Any, any thoughts about Daniel Jones? I looked into him as part of this adjusted efficiency that I put out there. His passing efficiency is pretty low. Um, Now I think he definitely is in the conversation for having the worst pass catchers Mm -hmm. in the NFL Mm -hmm. there. So his passing efficiency is down. His rushing is up about the the fourth most expected points added via scrambles or design runs after only Justin Fields, uh, Josh Allen, and Jalen Hurts so far this season. So that's up. So, you know, sustainability about that, I think he can sustain a decent amount of it, maybe not all of it going forward. But what he's really improved is is, is turnovers, the lowest um, expected points lost to – a uh, combination of interceptions or fumbles. Fumbles used to be as a real Achilles heel before um, of anyone in the NFL. If you look at it on a per play basis, what, what do we mm-hmm. think about him and maybe even beyond this year? Because there is talk of potentially extending him. Yeah. So I know there was reports coming out that Jan- Daniel Jones was, you know, the Giants were potentially going to offer him a multi-year contract. I think that'd be a huge mistake. Um, I, I think that would just stick the Giants in this like kind of mediocrity state where you can win, you can potentially win with him on a rookie deal 
even if the team isn't that great around him. And people have, were saying like, oh, they won, you know, 10 games with them this year or nine games with them this year. Um, and he's, he didn't even have that great of a team, right? I'm like, okay, but what makes you think the team is going to be any better if you're going to pay him $40 million, $35 million a year? And I have, I just like, I know uh, Jones, like his EPA per play this year, weirdly enough, it ranks 11th. Um, but like, I just haven't been able, I, I just haven't seen him like really make any passes that wow me. He has seven big time throws in 16 starts. You know, like that, that's the, he has the second lowest big time throw rate of any QB in the NFL. And judging that, you know, Dable's offense coming, from, like watching Josh Allen last year, it is kind of designed around explosive plays, getting guys on crossers and everything like that. I know his receiving core isn't that explosive to kind of help him generate these big time throws or explosive plays in general. I just think he hasn't really kind of flashed the high end talent to really justify getting a second contract. Even if the, I think, and I do think the efficiency numbers should be more of a reflection on Dable and Kafka than it is on, on Jones himself. What about um, Kenny Galladay being, <laughs> being back in the mix? Should we be adjusting, adjusting for the explosive, the explosive mannequin uh, on there? Okay. What's better for our takes? Let's talk about what's important here. Um, I guess the Vikings winning is better for our takes, but it's almost a no win situation because no matter which team wins, there will be a fan base who could say no one believed in us. Take your numbers and shove them nerds. But at least we have Quazy and everyone else there as part of the Vikings. Mm -hmm. So we can hang that on. Is, is, is that where we're leaning towards? I actually think the the Giants winning would be better for our takes. I think okay, Vikings, fans have been, Vikings fans have been really kind of brash to analytics people this year. <laughs> pointing out that EPA per play, point differential, net EPA, whatever you want to use, hasn't shown them as a top 10 team. They're, they're about an average team. And that and Giants fans kind of understand what they are. They're kind of just playing with house money right now, and they're happy to be there. So if the Giants were to able to, to win this game, I, you know, I'm always going to root for, for Kwesi in the future. But this season specifically, I think the things that Vikings fans have said about them being special and – being the only team in, in NFL history that is like going to sustain this really clutch ability from season to season would be something that if it came to, you know, push comes to shove here where the Giants were to win this game, we can kind of take a victory lap around all of that. Yeah, you might be right. You might be right. Anyway, <laughs> it kind of goes back to my uh, almost a no win uh, situation yeah. in, in this, in mm -hmm. this type of game. All right. Well, let's beyond the playoffs here. I want to talk with you guys about, uh, it's kind of generally how you think about doing research and specifically looking at the big data bowl for those who don't know, and maybe I'll let you guys lay out the, all the parameters of the, um, of the competition, but the NFL releases some of its tracking data on an annual basis. People can submit via, uh, is it all Kaggle sort of stuff, right? Yeah. Is Kaggle or Kaggle? Kaggle. 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 Sort of stuff. Kaggle, whatever. Yeah. Um, see, that's how old I am. Um, so <laughs> it, it, you, you submit everything through there. It's judged, and eventually, you know, there ends up being a, a winner for there. So I want to hear about kind of like the process of approaching this because it's something that you, you guys, this is multiple years that we're into this here. Uh, I'm going to go to the combine and, and check everything out in person. Uh, but again, I am as as someone who's older and kind of a hack when it comes to any sort of real quantitative stuff. Not something that I'm really going to be able to approach in the same way as you are. So little, talk, walk me through the process of how you think about this, because this is really where the value add is going to be. It's like once teams, you know, teams get it, you got to go for fourth down, we get it, pass a little bit more often, we get it. Um, you know, maybe I'll get 
teams like the Bears are taking multiple shots on quarterbacks. We get it. But this is really where you're going to be able to um, do something that, you know, you just cannot do. You cannot process this much information. There's no there's no no possible way of doing it through traditional methods of of scouting and things like that. Yeah, I mean, first off, no need to sell yourself short. I think like everything that you do from a public perspective adds a lot of value to us as analysts, fans, teams, etc. But from from our perspective, when we kind of approached the the big data bowl, we were given eight weeks of tracking data, weeks one through eight of the 2021 season to work with. And like for those who aren't familiar with tracking data, it takes where each player's location, direction, speed, acceleration are every tenth of a second through a play. So it becomes these really, really big data sets to work with. And so our first kind of month working together with us and our friend who goes to school with us, Joey DeCreasy, was an idea brainstorming phase where we were just coming up with, all right, what can we do to add as much value as possible to everyone that follows football's lives? And what we kind of thought of was doing something that could help people understand from a coaching perspective where sacks can come from. And so we wanted to figure out a lot of these questions on, is it better to line up an outside linebacker in a 3-4 scheme? To, does that increase the probability of a sack? Or do you switch to a 4-3 scheme and you kind of have two edge rushers and maybe those edge rushers have a higher chance of getting a sack? So after we came up with that idea, we had this kind of vision for basically building a dashboard that we could throw an expected sack model into, and it could spit out the probability of each player getting a sack on that play based on formation, how, where the defender was lined up on the field, different game situation variables. And then we kind of went from there, building out the expected sack model, using the eight weeks of data that we had to train on, and then putting that expected sack model into a dashboard that a coach or a fan could use to kind of place their different defenders around the field and then look at their probability of getting a sack based on where those defenders are lined up. And I think like one of the things I kind of heard about from other people who, who work in the league, like it's always good to kind of like look at other sports when like, when trying to like come up with ideas for the big data bowl or like, I, or like our topics or just in general. And so this, this was something that we kind of saw in the big data cup, which is like the, the hockey's version of the big data bowl, where the winning submission was a dot, like a, like a Java dashboard where you could drag and drop hockey players and it would spit out i think like the expected probability of a goal right tage mm -hmm. yeah like that yeah that's so what it was mm -hmm. me and tage don't You're actually like no moving job. them around the ice or just into and out of the game it, on the ice moving, so moving we, them around the ice yeah so okay, you could like drag and drop and create like hockey formations i don't know hockey at all so i don't even know if formations <laughs> are a thing but it would just give you the expected like probability of a goal which i thought was was really cool and that's kind of like how we designed our dashboard um, we built it in Python and they kind of built their dashboard in Java and, you know, me and Tage aren't like developers, so we didn't really have that ability. <laughs> but I think like the, the idea was that if, if we were to say build this for a team, this exact thing, we could pass it off to one of the IT people who would be able to build a drag and drop dashboard, which I think would help to increase the utility a little bit. But I think the way we approached it and just the end result, I think were was uh, in the right direction. And I'm curious to see how, what other people think of it and, uh, some of the feedback you get when the results come out. Yeah, I don't know. That'd be great. I mean, I'm going to go through all the submissions that are at least being made public at this point and eventually and try to, you know, give my boomer takes on 
on some of that stuff there. Um, actually, I like the idea of dragging and dropping players on the ice and then figuring out expected goals because it gets us one step closer to not even having to play the games, and we can just do that. And then whoever gets the most expected wins, and you don't have to worry about actual, actual, actual goals or not. Um, one thing with the sacks. Okay, so I, like goals is immediately tied to like the the thing that you want. Now, one thing that popped into my head, and maybe we can we could talk about this is like. Yeah, you want a sack, but if positioning a player in a certain area also gives a higher chance of giving up a big play on on the other side, then maybe net-net it's not uh, an expected points basis a good thing to do in that sort of way. Did you think about like those things pulling against each other? Um, or is a sack a big enough defensive play and a negative enough uh, a play, which I think is is not valued enough in people's minds because it's, you know... It, it, like more, more, more points are lost to sacks than interceptions on, on an annual basis in, in the NFL. Uh, how do you think about that? Like measuring one aspect of the game and how it fits into the puzzle of the larger maximization of points against or points for. Yeah, I know that's, that's a really good point to bring up is maybe if you put six defenders on the line of scrimmage, your chance of each of those players getting yeah, a sack. Yeah, you have all 11, right? Uh, yeah. <laughs> you have all 11. You have literal cover zero. That might, yeah, not, so, be, yeah. that might not be a good thing. Yeah. But yeah, but what we kind of had in mind was, all right, these are probably going to be pure passing situations that defensive coordinators are going to use these for. And that happens a lot in the NFL where we see these basically third and seven plus is almost always a pass in, in the league right now. And that's where we really thought defensive coordinators could use this to kind of help their probability of getting a sack there. Because when you're able to get a sack on, on that play, it, it really kind of does a lot for, for your defense. So that's what, that's how we kind of approach it. But I do agree that there could have been an expected EPA or uh, success rate projection that, that could come from, from lining up players around the field as well. Yeah, I mean, you might just like, I'm not saying you necessarily even have to have that. I'm just saying, you know, there, there's always these like competing interests in that and in that sort of thing. How, how good of an ability do you think based upon this, you could get like a outside of the box, real outside of the box type of um, insight into what you, you should be doing? Because you're, you're kind of like training it based upon what people have done in the past. Mm -hmm. So if you said, oh, we're going to line up this guy in this really weird position or do it like, does the data even have the ability to tell you whether or not that would work because no one's doing it. Right. So then it's, how do you even figure it out at that point? Maybe you could figure out incrementally as you get closer to that, which direction is going, things like that. Um, so I'm just kind of thinking out loud here. Mm -hmm. So I'm probably presenting a lot of things, but I do think it's extremely interesting, the type of applications you can have for this. And also like one of the things we kind of shot or we kind of like pivoted from early in our project was we were initially thinking about building like a cnn to take like an image of the entire defense at the you know right before the snap so in that sense i think what we could have done was if we if someone wanted to build a cnn you could have not you, you wouldn't have generated the expected probability of a sack for an individual player but instead the entire defense you know at the time of of the snap based on where all of the defensive players are aligned in pre-snap but in addition to that, you could also, like you were talking about, Kevin, generate like a range or just a mean expected or expected EPA of that formation. So I think there are like applications of what we did to where you can expand it to not just being on the player level, but on a whole defensive level that I think could be really cool. So I appreciate you bringing that up. I, I wish we kind of thought of that and maybe we could have explored that a little bit more. But I think um, that's definitely another application of, of what we kind of put together.
Yeah, and plus with these things, like there's a there's an infinite amount of time you could theoretically spend on it, right? And add to it and adjust with it and everything else. So that that is very interesting. I mean, just for those who may not be in the know, CNN, they're not talking about bringing in, um, you know, Wolf Blitzer or something like that to, to help to help work on this. We're talking about uh, a neural neural network. Where again, Boomer Boomer me, uh, not as familiar with that sort of stuff, but it definitely sounds it definitely sounds cool. What about that whole? debate because you you talked about using different types of things um neural network seems pretty cool like it gives you you got the brain imagery you know you, you have everything yeah like synapses firing that sort of stuff uh in in your mind versus using more traditional methods you have any any takes as far as that's concerned with trying to get kind of meaningful insight versus something that can process in a way that's cutting more cutting edge i guess in, in that sort of uh manner I could do a whole hour on this. So I'm not going to go on too long here. But when you look at when you look at tabular data, and this is something that I've talked to our friend Lau uh, extensively about. When you look at tabular data, tree-based models are performing better on test data sets, making predictions on tabular data than neural networks are right now, because neural networks are still relatively new and they just haven't been able to do as well. And it's it's very marginal difference between tree-based models and, and neural networks, but they haven't been able to get as accurate of predictions on new data because neural networks have a slight tendency to overfit. Neural networks can do wonders with image data, audio data, text data, but from just a tabular data perspective, which is what we were working with, that's why we decided to go with the tree-based model. And another thing that you get from a tree-based model, like we used an XGBoost classifier for our, for our model uh, predicting SAC or no SAC, the binary outcome, is you can get feature importance and you can understand why it's making the predictions that it's making. And for us, distance from the quarterback was the strongest predictor by far of your percent chance of getting a sack on defense, which made a lot of sense to us. For in, in a neural network, you're not going to get that feature importance. So it's a it's which it's much more of a black box. It's much less interpretable to use the neural network. So which is why we went we ended up going with the uh, the actually boost model. Yeah, I yeah. guess some people would even call XGBoost a little bit of a black box. So it's like mm. a, uh, it's even a, even darker box when we're talking yeah. about what's going on in the neural network. <laughs> okay, so last thing I want to talk about here: both of you guys have done work for PFF. You have a podcast now, which has been picked up by Blue Wire Podcast, which has been a very successful network of podcasts. There, uh, Tej, you announced recently that you're going to. Uh, Sumer Sports. I always say it incorrectly. Um, <laughs> sports to work there. There are literally more than dozens. I was going to say dozens is a joke, but there are more than dozens of of people out there looking to get into exactly the type of work that both of you guys have been doing, especially at you know a young age, really being able to move into that. What sort of advice? do you have for people other than like be really cool and insightful and have good tweets? Not that that hurts. That probably helps, but you know. yeah, it, def it definitely helps. I think like just having public work more than anything is super helpful. And it could just be like making like really long threads on Twitter. I personally found that writing just like blogging, I think is the best way of not only showing the work, but showing that you can explain your work. You can kind of, dumb your graphs down to the to a non-technical person who might not understand them that's kind of like how i got my start in and just writing football analytics like for our michigan football analytics club and that was something i was able to show to like austin gale 
when I was like going through the interview process to be brought on by PFF. So I think in that sense, it's, it's really cool. If, if you're trying to just do it as a hobby and trying to get a big following, I personally found that starting and just doing analysis for a specific team or whatever team you root for and trying to build up your follower account that way is a, is a great way of going about it. That's what I did where I would say like my first, like out of my first 500 followers, like probably like 450 of them were Chargers fans. And then from there you can expand your work to doing just like more general NFL stuff. And then, you know, people will enjoy you for your work and, and kind of the stuff you put out. But then Bengals fans will hate you when you keep on saying <laughs> that Justin Herbert's better than Joe yeah. Burrow, right? I've I've been uh I've been banned from any Burrow or Tua talk at this point. And I'm, I'm, <laughs> the thing, okay, if if the Chargers play the Bengals in like at any point in the playoffs, I think I would make the trip down to Cincinnati with some type of sign or something to get the the people riled up. Yeah, I'm sure. I'm sure they they'd enjoy it. All in good fun. Uh, well, yeah. what do you say? I'm assuming Tage, you have similar similar takes here. What also I think relationships maybe like obviously you you know like I knew Eric. Eric is like a good person to know. No, no Eric Eager. That's probably a good one. <laughs> That's probably a good one because he kind of helped me at PFF. Obviously, Tage, you had the relationship with him, and now at Assumer and everything else. Well, you have anything else to add to that? Yeah, or or just know someone who knows Eric Eager. So yeah, exactly. That would be one of us too. <laughs> yeah, um, exactly. yeah no, know us. That that's your that's the that that's your that's a good take. Yeah, Arjun Arjun hit a lot of the stuff that I usually say to people when they reach out, and that is one of the things. Just reach out to to any of us. I think the football analytics community, the sports analytics community, does a really good job of being open about their journey, things that they're working on, how to get to where you want to go. And so when you reach out to people, whether it's on Twitter, whether it's in the sports dataverse discord that I think we're, we're all a part of here, it's, it's really nice to see like all these connections get made. But I think like the, the biggest thing that you can do for yourself, if you want to get to kind of the, the level where you're working for a team or, you, or you're working for PFF, is to post insightful graphs and kind of put your own analysis on it on Twitter. And then when you see a big name account like yours, Kevin, or, or like Ben Baldwin, tweet about a topic you made a graph about. Replying with that graph to show that you kind of know what you're talking about is like something that I've seen people do in the past and has really worked out well for them when when people reply to my tweets with interesting data points or, or uh, analysis that I haven't thought of before. I'll, I'll almost always click on their account and scroll through them and sometimes even reach out to them and see if they want to expand more on that topic. So I think all of those things and, and there, there's opportunities available right now. If, if people have the time to, to be able to do it, I think you can really take advantage of how open and how public things are right now in the, the sports analytics world. Yeah, no, I totally agree there. And then I guess maybe even on the flip side, maybe I would say, even though I personally try to uh, separate like the human being from who they are on on social media like if you're ever thinking of like a snarky or aggressive response to something especially if it's someone like within this world mm -hmm. you know, just just think think pretty hard <laughs> about like is the benefit i'm getting from doing this which there are benefits like you know it feels good probably you might get some high fives from some people uh, maybe some of the film guys will be like, yeah, attack the nerds, you know, like you go, you have that sort of thing. But while it shouldn't be like a disqualifying factor or anything like that, if you're eventually going to apply to these jobs, it's just like, why? Right. Like, why? Like, what, mm -hmm. what, what are you what are you really gaining? For? So maybe that's the last thing that I'll say is, uh, you know, restrain what these 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 platforms are actually trying to get you to do in the first place, which is which is go out there and like dunk on someone when it's not necessarily uh 
something you have to do in, the, in that circumstance. Um, okay, anything else you guys want to plug now before I let you get out of here? We have the podcast. Like I'm going to do the intro uh, already to, to go over all your other work there. Anything else you want to plug or talk about before we get out of here? No, I think I think you highlighted everything that we needed. So I'm good. Okay, great. So I'll have all the links in the in the post when I put this out to the podcast, to your guys' Twitter, to uh, work you've done at PFF, and then again, once the big data bull stuff is out there, um, some reviews there, and uh, I thank you both for joining me. Uh, continued success, and hopefully, I see you guys both in Indy. Yeah, thanks for having us. This is a lot of fun. Have been really enjoying your Substack and listening to your show these these past couple of weeks. And I hope I hope it stays at at the rate that it's at right now because it's it's been really enjoyable. All right, thanks, guys.